our financial challenge for our guest today is to tie together blockchain, Bitcoin, and examine the world of cryptocurrency. How deep is your blockchain understanding? Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Reineman, and welcome back to a crazy, informative, and super interesting episode where we break down and discuss the mystery and the magic around cryptocurrency. Our special guest is Amy Wan, and she is absolutely amazing. She's an attorney, a partner in a law firm, a general counsel of a fintech company, co-founder of Legal Hackers LA, and last but certainly not least, she founded SageWise in 2018, which was created to help cryptocurrency create a system of safety nets, if you will, and combat the havoc that smart contract disputes can cause. And there is so much great knowledge. I walk away understanding crypto and blockchain a whole lot better, and I think you will as well. So without further ado, let's jump right in to the show with Amy. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This will be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited because I don't know that much about crypto and blockchain and all that good stuff. You are an amazing expert and we are going to start from the high level and kind of work our way down. So let's start off with just what is blockchain? Blockchain, people say it's a new technology, but really it's a lot of older technologies that have been cobbled together that allow for certain types of functionality. So a lot of people say, you know, I don't understand how blockchain works. So I'm just going to give a very simple, I'm one of quick them. analogy. Okay, so here we go. Do you know what Google Docs is? Yeah, I use it all day, every day. Yes. So Google Docs is like you open up a new document, you write something, and then if you share the link, then anyone else can see that document. Blockchain is kind of similar in the sense that you have this magical sheet of paper and if I write something on that magical sheet of paper, then everyone else who has a copy of that magical sheet of paper sees in real time what I write. We call them transactions. The real difference between Google Docs and blockchain, for example, is Google Docs is held in a centralized server. So really, there is one copy of this magical piece of paper that everyone can see. Conversely, with blockchain... It's not one server. Everyone who has this magical sheet of paper is what we call a node. They have that same copy, right? It's on a server. If you had to take away the digital analogy, just pretend these are all carbon copies. I have this magical sheet of paper. Every time I write something on it, everyone else who has that physical sheet of paper also sees new writing on it. This is why we call it distributed because it's not one server that has the information. It's 10 different people or 10 different nodes or 10 different servers who have the same exact copy. So that's why a lot of people say, oh, blockchain is very environmentally unfriendly, right? Because it takes a lot of electricity for so many people to be running these nodes because they all have copies. At the same time, one of the nice features of blockchain is that people say, oh, it's decentralized, it's immutable, it helps prevent fraud. Because again, 
it's decentralized. It's not one server. It's many people with copies. It's immutable because transactions are happening so quickly. And if everyone has a copy, if I want to go a couple steps back and fix something, it is very, very difficult for me to do that because that means I have to fix it on everyone else's sheet as well. And so that's why people say, oh, blockchain is very good at preventing fraud. It's very good at record keeping because of these exact features. That is the technology that exists. And how does cryptocurrency then play into blockchain itself? If blockchain is the technology, then cryptocurrency is what we call the killer app, or it's just one very popular use case. The reason it's so popular is because the first time blockchain technology was unveiled, it was through Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the first type of cryptocurrency that ever existed. So basically, the story goes that in the middle of the financial crisis, this pseudonymous person named Satoshi Nakamoto, we still don't know who that is or who the group of people behind that is, Mm -hmm. they put out a white paper into the world that introduced the concept of Bitcoin. And the whole idea was they wanted to basically create a new financial system because they thought the old one was corrupt. It had basically been corrupted by human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they put out the Bitcoin white paper, that was the first time that the world had ever been introduced to this concept of blockchain technology. Then after Bitcoin, people were like, oh, well, I can make my own coin. And so now you've seen a whole proliferation of what we call cryptocurrencies, which is basically digital coins or tokens that people believe have some sort of value. So cryptocurrency, you know, you've probably heard of Dogecoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, all those types there's of things. There's like a those thousand are, of them. I feel I, like there's I can't a even, lot. Is there like a thousand? I can't even keep track of how many. I, I don't even know it's anymore. Super confusing. I mean, anyone can make one, right? That was all between like 2009 to 2016. And then there was the second wave of the crypto industries, which is what we call ICOs, initial coin offerings. Maybe some of your listeners bought into these. Maybe some of your listeners were approached by them. But basically... I mean, likely with statistics, like some people will have bought and sold or definitely have known someone. I know dozens of people that bought this stuff and have no idea what they bought, but bought it. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, what happened is in 2016, there was something called the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO. And really what it was, was just a decentralized fund. The creator said, hey, owners of Ethereum, we're going to create this decentralized fund. And if you guys fund it with Ether, we can get proposals from the community and we can upvote or downvote which proposals we want to fund. It really is like a decentralized venture fund or something like that. That wasn't the first ICO, but it was among the first ICOs. And then people started looking at that and being like, well, hey, I would like to do this too. So the entire concept of an ICO was like, hey, I'm going to invent a digital coin or token. You will get certain things from ownership of that coin or token. It might be membership in a network. It might be 
discounts on trading on Binance, on this exchange, or it might even be equity in a company or a piece of real estate. But it was supposed to represent something. And people went out and were shilling this stuff. They were, they were hawking it and selling it. And people were raising crazy amounts of money. I mean, there was one ICO that raised $4 billion. Wow. That's a lot of money. Billion. And they hadn't built anything yet, right? Of course. <laughs> Which is the craziest part. And then people thought, oh, we invented this new way of raising money, which was not true because in July of 2017, the SEC came in and said, hey, guys, all this stuff you guys have been doing with ICOs, securities laws actually apply to that. So whatever you do, still be compliant with securities laws. So that didn't kill the ICO industry quickly. It probably took like one to two years for reality to set in. And it only set in because the SEC basically repeatedly started doing enforcement actions against different ICOs. So now it's 2019. The ICO industry is, it's not effectively dead, but it's really not doing well. What has instead taken its place is STOs or security token offerings, which basically is if you are going to invest in a company, if you're going to invest in a real estate syndication, whatever it is, You're still buying a security that's compliant with securities laws. It's just that once upon a time, we had a paper stock certificate. Now we have a digital one in the future. The idea is that you'll have this security token instead. Got it. So that's a huge, amazing history around blockchain, crypto, and I think kind of sets the stage for us to look at it from a basic level how are these things created? I've heard the term like you're mining for crypto is still mining. And what does all that mean? When you talk about mining, you're talking about mining for cryptocurrency usually, right? Yeah. So So let's just talk Bitcoin to make this really easy because I know there's a billion of them. So the analogy is like you can mine for Bitcoin very similarly to the way you would mine for gold, right? When you go and you mine for gold, it's not like you uncover a ton at one time and and you're good. No, it takes a lot of work and you're mining a little bit at a time. The way that Satoshi Nakamoto basically architected Bitcoin is that there is this super long algorithm. If you solve that algorithm, you basically are rewarded in Bitcoin. And that algorithm progressively over time gets longer and longer and longer and thus takes more computing power to mine. So there are computers all over the world that are using their computing power to solve this algorithm, which rewards you in Bitcoin. The way Bitcoin is architected, though, is that at the beginning, the algorithm is much shorter, it's much easier to solve. And over time, we don't want unlimited Bitcoin, right? This is something that is, there's a hard cap. And so it becomes progressively harder to solve that algorithm to the point where it plateaus. So there will only be a limited number of Bitcoin in the entire world, even if we devote all the computing power in the world to mining it. So there'll be a limited source, unlike kind of our unlimited paper money or digital money that the government is digitally printing now. Right. And so that's one of the things, right? Bitcoin, no matter what you do, it's going to be limited. 
Whereas they looked at the Federal Reserve and they're like, this is stupid. They're just printing out money. We've even given up <laughs> printing. Like we don't even actually print it. We just right, right. create it. It's ones and zeros. It's almost probably like how this is created. So, okay, someone's out there mining it. And obviously it takes electricity and cost to mine it. We know like the big boom and bust has occurred. But when someone says, okay, I'm not going to mine it. I'm just going to buy it. Where did they go buy it? And how does that work? Ah, so this is an interesting question. Probably one of the easiest ways to go buy it today. If you're in the U.S., you basically go to coinbase.com. You go sign up for an account. They make you go through some verification procedures. You know, you have to hold your driver's license up to your face and whatever and take a photo to verify your ID. Then you would just buy it off of Coinbase or something like that. If you are one of these folks who's, you know, really deep into this stuff, then Yes, there are a bunch of alternative ways to buy it. You can buy it from an exchange. There are Bitcoin ATMs across the United States that you can buy it from. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Um, you can buy it peer-to-peer, you know. If someone is selling Bitcoin, then you meet them in a coffee shop and they give you money and they transfer you Bitcoin, you know. Mm. So there are other ways, but it comes down to trust and how user-friendly is it. The other thing is that the price of these cryptos are changing constantly. Different exchanges or different sites will have largely the same but slightly different rates. So there are traders who will go and arbitrage this. They buy it from one site where it's temporarily cheaper and sell it on the other where it's higher. Of course. Yeah, everyone will try to make the spread somewhere. Even though itself is free to transact, there's always going to be someone that's trying to work through the arbitrage. It makes total sense. So let's just say from a novice level, I'm going to go buy one Bitcoin. I don't even care what it costs today. That's irrelevant. And I'm going to go do it through Coinbase. Then where does it go? I've heard the term wallet, but obviously it's not a physical thing. It's a digital one. So like, how does that work? A couple of things. So one is Bitcoin is still relatively expensive and you don't have to buy one, two, three Bitcoin. You can buy 0.0001 Bitcoin. So that's the first thing. Second thing, once you have the crypto, where do you keep it? I'll give you the correct best practices answer. Okay. And then I'll tell you what everyone actually does, right? <laughs> okay. Tell me the textbook <laughs> so, version and then the reality version. So crypto is a bearer instrument. What that means is he or she who holds it owns it. Once you have bought your Bitcoin, then what you should do is you transfer it into your wallet. You have a wallet address. That's how you're identified. It's an identifier, like an email address or an IP address. And then you also have these things called private keys. Private keys should only be known by you. You should never give them out to anyone, even if anyone ever asks, because that's your social security number. It is like the key to all your crypto. You give away your private key, you're screwed and no one can help you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we have something called cold storage. If you're not planning to trade your crypto anytime soon and you just want to keep it safe, you don't have to keep it in your wallet. You can keep it on a separate device that goes into cold storage. You know, you might have heard of the term like Ledger or Trezor or mm-hmm. things like that. So that's the device that people are using. One thing I will say, because folks on your show, many of them might have families, is to the extent that you are keeping your crypto on a wallet or in cold storage or or something that's not 
centralized. Do you think about your family? Do you think about how you are going to be able to allow your heirs to inherit that crypto? Because I've heard of too many stories where it's like one spouse dies, they held everything in crypto, and the other spouse basically loses the house and everything because they, they don't know how to access the crypto. So just keep that in mind. So that's the textbook answer. Now, handling all of this stuff, your private keys, your wallet, your cold storage, whether your wallet's on your mobile device, your desktop, whatever, it's not user-friendly today. Honestly, what a lot of people do is they just keep it on their Coinbase account. You're not supposed to. If Coinbase ever gets hacked, you might be screwed. But people will often keep it on their account for their exchange or their Coinbase account or whatever, just because no one really has confidence in dealing with the security around their crypto today. So if I keep it on my Coinbase account, the example I have here, because it's local and I see it pretty much every day, I drive by the gas station and the gas station now says like, we are accepting Bitcoin and you get 40 cents off a gallon or, or whatever it is. And I'm like, that's interesting. How would I even pay for that gas in Bitcoin. I'm sure it's obviously a very, very small fractional amount, but how does that even work? Is that through my wallet? So it really depends on the vendor and what system they have set up. Some people have some stores that are accepting crypto. They'll use like a SaaS platform that accepts crypto and, and other people will devise different ways, right? So it could be anything from sending it from your wallet to sending it from your Coinbase account to whatever. It it really depends on the vendor. Okay, so I could, in theory, go with bad practice, save everything in my Coinbase account, and then I could pay them, in theory, from that Coinbase account? Yes. Okay, or I could transfer it it, to my wallet and then from my wallet send it. Yeah. Is it through an app or is it how the cool Chase Pay and I just like hold my phone and it just (laughs) ding and it's done? Uh, I don't think there's the ding thing yet. It really depends on the vendor. It's kind of like every store you go to, some have Clover, some have Square, some are cash only. So it's Mm -hmm. however they want to accept it. Now I want to transition into the, how do I protect myself? So we've said what you should do and what people now currently are doing, (laughs) but how do you protect yourself from getting hacked? So there's many different vectors of getting hacked. Not giving your private keys away, that's probably the first step. Not having your private keys written out and saved on your Evernote or something like that. So it gets pushed to the cloud, someone hacks that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What we have been seeing a lot in the crypto community over the past year, I would say, is what we call SIM hacking, where people will actually go and they hack your phone. So the way that they do this is they will call up Teen Mobile, uh, Verizon, whatever, and be like, I'm trying to transfer my number to a different phone. And what these companies are supposed to do is say, no, you cannot do that. And you have to actually go in store. You have to present ID, all of this stuff. Once in a while, they might get a stupid agent that allows them to do that. And so the SIM hackers just keep calling back and getting different agents until they find one that allows them to do this. And you'll know because pretty much your phone will be dead. You can't make calls from it. You're not getting a signal because the phone number isn't Mm -hmm. associated with that phone anymore. The phone number has been ported over (laughs) to a different SIM card 
on a different phone. Your hacker has that. And then remember your phone number often is the recovery process for a lot of things, right? So they'll get into your email account, your exchange accounts, your Coinbase, whatever, and just start looking for everywhere where you might be keeping crypto or keeping information that leads to your crypto. There have been a lot of people who have lost a lot of money through this method. And I think no one is immune. Almost every crypto influencer I've seen has had this happen to them. In fact, there's right now, I think, a $200 million lawsuit against AT&T because of this. Wow. So okay. that's the method I'm seeing happen most often. If anyone has some sort of website, they might try to hack your domain. So your GoDaddy, your Namecheap, whatever. I think the attack vectors are infinite. It really comes down to like what you're doing to keep your crypto safe. There are a number of custodial companies that have popped up. In fact, one I think right now is willing to keep your crypto for free or custody your crypto for free. So that's something. But remember, like if you're having it with custodian, you can't be there day trading it, right? It has to like stay with them for a while. Well, and then you've got one point of contact now that if they get hacked, right? Ah, then... but they have insurance policies. Oh, okay. <laughs> got it. Well, I mean, that's that's obviously key. So what would be the best practice? You're going to go, I'm just going to use example, going on Coinbase, you buy one Bitcoin, you toss it to your wallet. And what's like the best practice? It would be to put it on your ledger or your treasure. And if you want to do that, if you go and YouTube videos, um, there's a lot of people who have tutorials about how to do that. Yeah, and are you able to spend it while it's on your ledger? Or is that you would have to go and take it from your treasure or ledger and put it back into wherever you want to put it? Got it. I think because this is obviously a really complex process and it's got it a is. lot of moving pieces and then it's got yeah. a lot of exposure to this. And this is where I want to kind of like round out our conversation is what are some of the biggest challenges facing crypto, blockchain, like all this stuff to achieving this widespread adoption? Because I think I'm decently smart. And like, this still seems complicated to me. How would anyone figure this out, you know, if they're not really nerding out on it? I would say that today, I don't think there is an incredibly good way. You know, it's kind of like where we were with the early internet. Today, there's not enough good user interface, user experience design around these systems that make it very easy for regular people, mainstream people or consumers to use. People are coming out with stuff, but at the same time, it still takes a certain level of technical understanding where you still have to kind of deep dive in, right? Like my company, end of last year, we built something called Sendios. Sendios is, EOS is a type of cryptocurrency. Don't send this cryptocurrency with private keys and all that stuff go send it with just an email address. So we built a machine that did that. And then for people who wanted to buy EOS for the first time and, and actually start an EOS account, a friend could send you EOS and it would take you through like a one-step process instead of like the 12-step process it would take to normally create the EOS account. So people are coming out with stuff. I think it's just a matter of the space needs to mature. And I do you think one of the big challenges today is a lot of people in the space are so technical. A lot of these people are technologists, they're developers, right? They live in this world. So for them, it's not a problem. And so a lot of them, I think, are down the rabbit hole. Their heads are so stuck in this that they don't see why 
mainstream users can't adopt this. But um, this is a challenge that we talk about every single day in the company. Like, oh, why is it so difficult to even buy crypto? Hmm, you know, is there a way where you could earn crypto? And that's actually something we're looking at right now. Interesting. You'd earn like what, 0.00000? Yeah, you could earn, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you could earn 25 cents worth of Bitcoin, right? But then you could say like, yeah, I have a little bit of Bitcoin. I have a little exposure. And hey, you're not using your life savings to like gamble on it. So, you know, I think a lot of people really get carried away by the hype and they're like, oh, I need to invest whatever's in my checking account into this. And that's never a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. From a financial perspective, you have to remember that this is all speculation. This is all a gamble. You should never invest more than double digits and never more than what you're willing to lose. So we've been thinking, you know, if you could just earn a little bit on the side by playing a game or something like, hey, that wouldn't be so bad. I think that's interesting. So with all the different types of currencies out there, what do you see as an expert in this field? Like, I mean, is it just Bitcoin or bust? There definitely is a quote around Bitcoin because it was a first. There are these people called Bitcoin maximalists, right? Where they're like, the one true cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. There are some major cryptocurrencies. So in fact, if you go to like coinmarketcap.com, they list the cryptocurrencies by market cap. So you'll see Ethereum, you'll see, you know, Litecoin, EOS, things of that sort. And after that, it is like choose your own religion, right? Mm. A lot of these cryptocurrencies, they have huge fanatics and fans behind them. And these things literally are like religions, right? People get really into the ones that they own. So it just really depends. Now, I will say the difference between cryptocurrencies and the other things that are starting to emerge today, stable coins, asset-backed tokens, security tokens, is that Bitcoin, it's like the dollar. The dollar says, in God we trust, and you trust that the dollar will be worth something someday. That's why people transacted it, right? You trust that Bitcoin will be worth something someday. And the price is based off of what the market believes it is worth. Whereas when you get into the other things that I mentioned, stablecoin, stablecoins are often backed by the US dollar or some sort of national currency or basket of currencies. Stablecoins are a relatively new thing. They really only really started last year. They do not vacillate in price nearly as much. So one of some certain stablecoin should always be worth at or near one US dollar or something like that, or a digital asset token. So there's people now who are tokenizing real estate. So it's like, oh, we'll go buy this property. And as a traditional investor, you would have owned one unit. Now you get one token instead, right? And you get distributions or dividends or whatever. And if we ever sell the property, you'll get the exit so long as you are the token holder. So that is actually backed by some sort of asset. We call it digital asset. People are doing this with gold, with diamonds, with whatever. That's fascinating. So people are actually buying real estate, obviously having to convert whatever that currency was to US dollars, essentially buying it because real estate doesn't transact in whatever that currency is called. If you were investing in a real estate syndication, Mm -hmm. right, instead of getting necessarily paperwork that says, hey, you own 5,000 units, you would get 5,000 tokens. And those tokens represent your ownership interest or your investment interest in that investment. So could I in turn around go and sell this, let's say to you instead of 
me owning 5,000, I was like, hey, I actually need some cash, which this is generally illiquid. Now I want to sell a thousand of these to you. That is the dream. Okay. That's what everyone in the security token industry is working towards. We're not quite there yet. There are a couple of security token exchanges that today are trading security tokens, but I think they're only trading like one or two of them right now because they just started, they just opened, and we're still waiting for the market to come, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's the dream. That's what everyone's trying to work towards. I think that'd be really fascinating. I mean, it's very complex and hard to understand even just from the crypto level, but if there was some widespread education and this was easier and safer to transact in, I think you could take something like real estate, which is asset-backed and generally illiquid. If you could turn that into a liquid investment, I think that'd be really fascinating to see how that would Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a company that was kind of doing this with REITs called CFX, and now they've opened up a new entity rebranded. Now they're called Open Finance, and that's basically what they're trying to do. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to stay tuned with that. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. How can everyone learn more about you, follow along, understand what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So I basically play at the intersections of securities law, real estate syndication, and blockchain, legal tech, smart contracts. Those are all things that fascinate me and I work with every day. My website is just amywanlaw.com. I largely don't practice anymore today except for representing real estate syndicators. So I have a business that does that where we're half attorney, half AI that drafts your real estate syndication documents, and that's bootstraplegal.com. And then for what we're doing at my company on the blockchain side, it's sagewise.io. Cool. And you also have a podcast that in five minutes I learned a ton on. What was your podcast called again? So it's called the Law and Blockchain Podcast. It's on the Bitcoin Podcast Network. And actually, I think one of the recent episodes that we did covers a little bit of best practices around what to do with your crypto so that you can actually pass it on to your heirs. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I'll make sure that I link to that in the show notes at financialresidency.com. I'll go check it out and definitely take a listen because I think all this stuff is really fascinating. It's just hard to trust the information and then there's a lot of complexity around it. Definitely. I think you gave us a really good overview on what all this stuff kind of is and how to protect ourselves. So thank you again for being on the show. It was awesome to speak with you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site Financially Free MD titled Tax Rules That Help You Invest, Pay Off Debt, or Invest Early Series. Before you skip forward because we're going to talk about some tax stuff, it was actually really beneficial enough that I want to highlight here on the journal club. It's a post that is one in a series, and it's a great series. And the author is discussing basically tax leakages caused by ignoring tax implications in your investment portfolios. He goes on to say that it's fairly common to have this tax leakage in your portfolio when the portfolio includes investments that produce capital gains, dividends, or interest income. And I quote, there is typically a theoretical optimal approach if an unemotional robot were to apply financial models to an analysis for any given set of variables. His goal is to help readers understand each variable 
and their individual importance weighing on a multivariate problem. Once you understand the practical data, you can meld it with your emotional behavior to optimize your individual situation. And I love in this article that they bring it back to the emotional side of understanding your investments. Not just with the quote that encourages us to kind of step back and analyze it, but the article is just really well written. And it's talking about this unemotional way of investing, but also mixing in some of that emotional behavior. Financially Free EMD outlines the arguments and gives us some really clear examples of time horizon uh, leakage, initial capital leakage, final capital gains leakage. And another thing that I really liked was the tax deductibility and how that was explained. Financially Free MD states that there's also a big structural difference between your student debt and your mortgage debt and, and investments. In my experience, I see that investing in real estate is an effective way to invest and build financial freedom in addition to traditional investments, the stocks and the bonds. And I think this, this series just gives a great understanding of different ways to look at some of these things that we typically maybe skim over, maybe because they're not as much fun to read or to learn about. So we're going to actually have a huge series ourselves on real estate investing coming in the near future. So make sure you look out for it. Financially Free MD, it was an excellent article. I'm definitely going to make sure that I link to this in the show notes at financialresidency.com. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the show with Amy Wan. And we have five takeaways here to help build your relationship with money. Takeaway number one, Amy explained to us how blockchain actually works. You have this magical sheet of paper. And if I write something on that magical sheet of paper, then everyone else who has a copy of that magical sheet of paper sees in real time what I write. We call them transactions. The real difference between Google Docs and blockchain, for example, is Google Docs is held in a centralized server. So really, there is one copy of this magical piece of paper that everyone can see. Conversely, with blockchain, it's not one server. Everyone who has this magical sheet of paper is what we call a node. They have that same copy, right? It's on a server. If you had to take away the digital analogy, just pretend these are all carbon copies. I have this magical sheet of paper. Every time I write something on it, everyone else who has that physical sheet of paper also sees new writing on it. This is why we call it distributed because it's not one server that has the information. It's 10 different people or 10 different nodes or 10 different servers who have the same exact copies. She then expanded on some of the positive aspects of blockchain, such as security and record keeping. It's decentralized, it's immutable, it helps prevent fraud because, again, it's decentralized. It's not one server, it's many people with copies. It's immutable because transactions are happening so quickly. And if everyone has a copy, if I want to go a couple steps back and fix something, it is very, very difficult for me to do that because that means I have to fix it on everyone else's sheet as well. I want to understand a little bit more how cryptocurrency plays into blockchain. If blockchain is the technology, then cryptocurrency is what we call the killer app, or it's just one very popular use case. The reason it's so popular is because the first time blockchain technology was unveiled, it was through Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the first type of cryptocurrency that ever existed. 
We discuss the history around blockchain and cryptocurrency. It's 2019. The ICO industry is, it's not effectively dead, but it's really not doing well. What has instead taken its place is STOs or security token offerings, which basically is if you are going to invest in a company, if you're going to invest in a real estate syndication, whatever it is, you're still buying a security. And we went over a scenario where a novice bought a Bitcoin and what would actually happen next? Once you have bought your Bitcoin, then what you should do is you transfer it into your wallet. You have a wallet address. That's how you're identified. It's an identifier like an email address or an IP address. And then you also have these things called private keys. Private keys should only be known by you. You should never give them out to anyone, even if anyone ever asks, because that's your social security number. So for our quick community update, we're still seeing a lot of you fill out the financial health assessment forms, which can be found at financialresidency.com slash form, F-O-R-M. There's so much great information you guys have been including. It's truly remarkable. I can't wait to just get through all of them. We're going to be binge recording a bunch of these to get these out for our Friday shows. And some of you took a lot of time to fill out the forms, but then you didn't leave a voicemail. And if that happens to be you, please go back to your email Look at, you're going to have instructions there. Go back and figure out how to leave us a voicemail. We're prioritizing the ones that have left voicemails. So if you haven't, please go back and do that if you can. Also, just a reminder, the daily podcast show that I launched back in February, Physician Finance Minute, is still around and gaining traction, uh, huge traction, actually. The tips are anywhere from about a minute to two minutes long, and they go on a variety of subjects that are really important to all of you as physicians or spouses of physicians. If you want a small dose of this show in a form that has super helpful tips and tricks to take control over your finances, please go subscribe, check it out. You can actually subscribe to the show in the same player you're listening to me in right now, and then you can go binge listen the last 50 or 60 shows or however many we've had. And since they're so short, it's really just going to take you about an hour to get through them. That's Physician Finance Minute. Go check it out and subscribe today. Hey, everyone, listen up real quick. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm really happy that you're here and you're excited to learn about your finances. There's clearly no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to know that your money decisions should be talked through with someone that's really knowledgeable about your situation. And that person isn't me unless you're already a client. And then that's a totally different story. So consult an attorney, a CPA, or heck, reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner to help you get on your feet the right way. Next week, we have a really fun show planned with my special guest, who happens to be my partner at Physician Wealth Services, Casey Kress, as we talk on the financial literacy in America. It's a really fun one. Uh, Sometimes a little bit depressing, but it's awesome. So have a great week. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.